Trizio Eurasia Center. Thank you very much for coming. I apologize for the late start, but the late start was in order to ensure we could connect by Skype with Vadim Pristeko, the Deputy Foreign Minister of Ukraine, who in fact is in the east of Ukraine. So he'll be participating in, in this, this first session uh, by Skype. We have a distinguished first panel, and I'm not going to introduce them. I'll simply say it'll be moderated by Evelyn Farkas, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, very smart on this part of the world, and turn it over to the panel. Thank you. Good morning. Oh, I should let the gentleman go first. Right. I should get a notebook, I <laughs> Thank think. you. Excuse me. So thank you, everyone, for being here bright and early. Uh, and I know we have an audience joining us in the, in the <coughs> internet world. So we felt that it was time at the Atlantic Council to take a look at the mince process and update ourselves what's happening on the ground. And of course, this panel will be focused on the current status. And we'll have a couple of other panels going, digging deeper into the objectives of the parties and then possible resolution, although I hope that we'll also be able to touch upon these two items as well in our panel. And we're very fortunate to have a really interesting panel today. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for this opportunity um, because of the diversity of the panel, the really interesting perspectives we have. I, I've been told not to introduce everyone, but um, obviously we have Deputy Foreign Minister joining us um, from Skype um, from Ukraine, so that's very exciting. And I understand he's just, he may be in Kharkiv right now, or, and he's just come from the east. So I think he will be obviously very well situated to give us an immediate update on what's going on on the ground. In addition, of course, we have Paul Quinn Judge um, from the International Crisis Group, who's one of the few people that I know who not only has a very distinguished journalistic background dealing with Russia and Ukraine, but has been in and out of the Donbass over the last several years and really does have very good on-the-ground perspective and has spent a lot of time speaking to separatists, actually. So I think he brings a very unique perspective to us. And then, of course, Mr. Adrian Karatniki, who is one of our uh, non-resident senior fellows with deep expertise in Ukraine and Russia, uh, coming from the investment community, but also representing other US-Ukrainian interests. And um, he will be able to give us also his insights into the process uh, thus far. And then finally, of course, Dr. Anders Ashland, um, my colleague also here at the Atlantic Council, who brings deep expertise on economic policy has worked as an advisor, as many of you know, to the Russian government, to the Ukrainian government, and has worked in most of the major think tanks in Washington, D.C. since then. So uh, I would like to not spend too much time saying anything more, except to say that um, we all know, and I think the, the minister will give us some more information, that the situation in Ukraine on the ground in the east has become more tense, that the ceasefire violations are up, that they are emanating from the, from the separatist region largely. And, um, and we are all very concerned about the future of the Minsk process because really everything is at this point, diplomatically speaking, depending on the, the resolution according to the Minsk agreement. Now the Minsk agreement, we all know, is not a perfect agreement. And there's a lot that's un, unwritten and unagreed, un if you will, in the Minsk agreement. So, 
there, the sequencing. Everyone agrees what each party should do, but nobody agrees on what the actual sequencing should be. So I do hope that we'll have some opportunity to talk about that today. And then I think I will just quote, um, because in the, in the US administration, and I give a nod to my former colleagues here, they are very much focused still on Ukraine, even though you don't see it necessarily in the headlines every day. And Assistant Secretary Newland, as many of you know, was recently testifying on the Hill. She made a very interesting comment, and I think a constructive comment um, in her testimony, where she commented and said that, quote, neither Moscow nor the self-appointed Donbass authorities should expect the Ukrainian Rada to take up key outstanding political provisions of the Minsk agreement, including election modalities and constitutional amendments, before the Kremlin and its proxies meet their basic security obligations under Minsk. So I think that is um, an interesting and significant statement. Um, without further ado, I, I would like to turn over the microphone, if you will, to the Deputy Foreign Minister of Ukraine. Um, sir, please, we look forward to your comments. Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Yes. Sorry for not being with you. I, I was thankful for the invitation to Atlantic Council, to the Dina Patricia Center. Unfortunately, couldn't do it, although I had the uh, tickets in my hands. I had to escort the VIP to east of Ukraine. This time, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania, Mr. Linkavichus, came to, to, to Ukraine, and he went all the way to Mariupol, where I had all the important meetings with the uh, leadership of the city and the Donetsk Oblast. A couple of very interesting ones I will be able to stop by in a couple of seconds. But we also managed to get as far as Shirokina. And I have to tell you from the experience of, of the first hand, I can report to you that ceasefire is not here. Our company was shot twice at, with the mortars, 82 mils SOC accessed. We, we saw the front line, we talked to people, we talked to soldiers, and we have to tell you that the situation has been different from what you can see from, say, Washington or even Kiev. Now, talking to, to people on the ground, and especially uh, to the uh, newly appointed governor of Donetsk, I have to tell you that these people, because they are exposure to reality, not the, to the theory we are talking about, the diplomacy and you know, all the inventive ideas we have or might have, these people have quite simple, simple scheme in, in their minds how to reach, how to get to the point where all of us dreamed of. Before we start, I'd like to tell you that we do realize and do appreciate the efforts of which have been put by everybody, all the allies, the United States, Germany, France, first of all, the members of so-called Normandy Four, for being able to bring to life the Normandy format and then Minsk agreements. I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be from the very beginning of the process, was negotiating in Minsk and then two days uh, in Berlin, two days in Minsk, expecting leaders to come and finalize the deal. The deal which you see now, that's the deal we, we managed to pull out at that time. It played a significant, even not critical role in stopping the Russian forces and, and the separatist forces next to the place where they're now. But even since the September of 2014, they took over another 500 square kilometers. If you remember, uh, we lost in two days debates after the Minsk already been, uh, be, uh, been uh, reached. So all of this mounts up to the different understanding of people on the grounds of the Minsk agreements and uh, whether they should be uh, followed and how they should be followed. Their ideas are very simply 
very simply formulated. And I'll, I'll give the credit to uh, Governor Zhebrivsky. He had a five-step uh, approach to realization of whatever you call it, Minsk agreements or just the, the settlement uh, procedure. First of all, he reminds us that we have to withdraw the, the withdrawal of uh, the foreign formations. And if we follow the, uh, the uh, Minsk itself, we will find out that this is very well suited in the uh, scheme of the initial Minsk. Then he's talking about disarmament. With such amount of the weapons on the streets and in everybody's hands, it's very difficult to proceed with, with any new uh, phases like elections, for which we've been pushed by many European colleagues so furiously. Then he reminded me of the mission, of policing mission, in any, of any sort. Mission which will be able to stand between, between forces and allow the process, the peaceful process, to start. Another interesting point which he, meant, uh, he made, and it was quite surprising to me, that this is the uh, revolution in information field. And actually, for the governor, with a lot of the practical issues, I didn't expect him to come to this so, so early in the process. But he made the point, telling me and, and everybody else, and first of all, the Minister of, of NATO and EU states this way, that we have to deal with informational campaign, which all these lies which been poured on the heads of these people. As Minister Linkevich has mentioned, there is, there is a rule and there is a right of people for truth. There is no uh, rights for people for lies. And this was mentioned to, by him in the, in the, in the uh, State University talking to students as well. Uh, I'm, very I'm very happy that recently you, the United States introduced another, another bill. I understand it was done and the public was well known about this in the Atlantic Council. I commend for this. This is a great achievement. We have to go along this line because the uh, amount of lie and the intensity of it is enormous. The Governor, Governor Zhebrisky gave me an example. People coming to Ukraine to get their pensions, crossing the border, they're going to the stores, buying cheaper and more quality, higher quality uh, products. They're returning back, bringing all these goods with them, as well as the plants where Ukrainian soldiers are staying, giving it up to the, to the separatists. That's how difficult for people to understand the reality, and that's how difficult for us to buy or to, to, to win the hearts and minds. Then, uh, returning back to the uh, Governor Zhebrivsky uh, six points plan. Another point on his plan is the border. He is telling what all the military people were telling uh, for, for a year at least. We can move further if we are not in control of the border. It doesn't mean that Ukrainian soldiers have to stay there, although it was a preferable scenario. We understood the political reality. But I have to remind you that in initial Minsk, which is real Minsk, not the package of measures which was taken in February 2014, in real Minsk, it was an idea to establish the security corridor along the Ukrainian-Russian border, secured by OSCE, controlling that nobody is coming in, no weapons are arriving through the territory of Ukraine from Russian Federation. And then Governor Zhebrisky is coming to the to the elections as a final resolution for the for the for the whole problem. He reminds me, he reminded me, and he reminded everybody else that. The uh, history, recent history, is, is teaching us that if you have uh, elections earlier than a year at least, the hostilities are still in minds of the people, they're still in heads, and the uh, recurrence of the situation is very well expected. 
So this is a simple plan. I, I don't want to, to take much of your time. I understand that we have many interesting people in the panel. I will be here and we'll ready to, to, to talk to you later on. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Minister. Um, and I think you already highlighted some very interesting points of contention that I hope uh, our colleagues here will also address. So without further ado, I would like to turn over the floor to Paul, and I will ask each of the presenters, because we started a little bit late, to really keep your comments to 10 minutes, if you can do that, or even less, <laughs> um, because, of course, we want to give a chance to the um, audience to also participate in the conversation. So, Paul, please. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I will try to take you on a, as I've been asked to do, take you on a quick gallop through the situation in Donetsk and Luhansk, the leadership of those two um, separatist entities. And I will touch very briefly on Russian um, presence in the East and the Russian plans for the East in the longer term. Most of the work I'm referring, I'm relying on with regard to the separatists is some visits I made to Donetsk last year. I made five, I think, um, spending quite a bit of time each time in Donetsk Oblast, in particular in Donetsk City, speaking to separatist leaders on an off-the-record basis, and essentially trying to get a sense of how they viewed the situation, how they viewed their leadership, and where they saw the place going. That part of my presentation will be extremely brief, because I think many of us in this room have seen a situation like Donetsk and many other places in the world where I suspect we have worked studied or served. Um, what happened in Donetsk in early 2014 is what often happens when a corrupt regime collapses, creates a political and security vacuum, and the swiftest, um, politically most opportunistic people move in to fill that vacuum. This is very much the basis of the Donetsk leadership in particular. I will focus on them because they are the larger of the two separatist entities. They have some relative degree of sophistication in their analysis, and they have, were also quite accessible. So if you look at the leadership, who's the leadership of the DNR at the moment? Um, they would not object to the um, description of being accidental leaders, Slutschainia leaders, because they found themselves in, in power and uh, circumstances in, to a large degree beyond their control. They are not a cohesive group of like-minded comrades. Most of them did not know each other before early 2014. The de facto president of um, the Donetsk People's Republic is Alexander Zakharchenko, who, who came to prominence in early two, 2014 as, as providing security and muscle for the party of regions in Kharkov, just as the Yanukovych regime was collapsing. The second person in the DNR for most of the last um, year and a half has been Andriy Purgin, who is a very modest local nationalist um, activist in the early years of, the 20, of uh, this century, the 21st century. The, most experienced of the leaders is Alexander Khodorkovsky, who was is a colonel in state security and was the head of the counter-terror team in Donetsk Oblast, or the Alpha team, in the uh, Yanukovych period. The final leader, who is now emerging as the most voluble and perhaps the most influential in a very moderate way, 
in a very relative way in the leadership is Denise Bouchilin, who in 2000, early 2014 had no involvement in separatist activities whatsoever. As far as we can make out, he was still working in Moscow, where he was selling the product of a well-known, very controversial businessman called Sergei Mavrodi, um, who headed an organization, an outfit called MMM, which is reputed to be, to have been the largest Ponzi scheme in Russian history, though of course Mr. Mavrodi denies this. Um, Pushilin came back very soon afterwards, saw his opportunity and moved in. What do the leadership, well, the popular support, the popular support of the, of the especially in the DNR, is somewhat limited, but there's a caveat to this. If you ask the leadership in the East um, who supports them, they are disarmingly frank. They, one of them starts by saying who does not support them. And last time I spoke to him, he ran through the professional classes, business, people with tertiary education, young people, university students, or those with a higher technical education. And he added at the end, so you can see we have a, we have a problem. The, the people who do support them, according to, again, to the same person who is certainly viewed as the main ideologist in Donetsk, um, unemployed, urban, um, low-salaried urban dwellers, rural dwellers, pensioners. There is not a large degree of organized nationalist um, sentiment there. There is, there is nationalist sentiment. The, at the beginning of the um, period of the being of the DNR, the separatists had considerable support by radical Russian nationalists, support in terms of propaganda, um, political assistance, um, military assistance. This is diminishing quite substantially because the current leadership in Donetsk is viewed by the radical nationalists, I'm thinking of Strilkov, I'm thinking of Zhuchkovsky and other people in, in Moscow, as moving away, as abandoning the principles of the nationalist struggle. Um, what do they want, the DNR, uh, LNR leadership? They want the status quo. They don't want Minsk. They're very scared of Minsk. Uh, naturally, because Minsk would at the very least be, re represent a substantial erosion of their uh, powers and would probably also oblige them to share economic privileges with other leading political players in Ukraine. They are concentrating on trying to consolidate their own political and economic power in the two entities. They are trying to concentrate the bulk of money generating activities in, again, in their own hands. They are very clear that they see no chance of a military victory over Ukraine without substantial and decisive large scale Russian main force support. Um, they are at the moment, what they are doing, there's a struggle for leadership going on in Donetsk uh, with the main, one of the main figures, uh, Khodorkovsky, challenging Zakharchenko. Um, this is a struggle for political power and I think also economic power. The, um, some of the most important infrastructure in, in the East these days are railway junctions for smuggling. And um, part of the struggle, power struggle is taking place in a, in a town called Yasinovatia, which is controlled by Khodakovsky, which he does not seem willing to give up very easily, and which is a major railway junction. The, 
the major economic activity in the East at this moment, in Donetsk and Luhansk at this moment, is smuggling, as far as I can um, uh, uh, find, I, I, as far as I can ascertain. Uh, this is not um, small-scale smuggling. It's quite well organized. It's almost certainly involving corrupt elements of the security structures in Ukraine and in Russia, as well as in the entities themselves. The, um, the smuggling is, was estimated by one of the Donetsk separatist leaders late summer of last year at millions of dollars a week. It is smuggling of coal, scrap metal, which after a war is phenomenally um, available, drugs, weapons. The Russians have become slightly concerned about this and have mentioned a few times in public their anxiety about the weapon smuggling. Um, consumer commodities, because the, the region, the, the entities are sealed off, essentially, from Ukraine. Um, and there is some concern now among those who look at the border situation in Kiev that um, we could soon see human trafficking as well. The Russian, the Russian role in the separatist entities is predominant. Um, in military terms, they they make all decisions, as far as I can understand. Um, they do not necessarily, they may, they may inform their separatist counterparts, but they do not consult them. They have, um, they ensure the um, uh, cooperation of their separatist counterparts by the obvious reasons. Um, firstly, uh, the institution of kurator, military overseers, political, military, political overseers. Anybody who worked as a journalist in the Soviet Union had a kurator. They made sure we behaved ourselves. And they're doing roughly the same in, in, um, in Donetsk and Luhansk, but on a bigger scale and in more serious scale. The other way that Russia controls the uh, military situation in the East is by uh, military <coughs> aid, the so-called Vayenturk, which is a nod to the old department stores in Russia, which were provided basic equipment for soldiers. Vayenturg in the east is um, weapons, is fuel, is um, repairing of more sophisticated machinery, and when the need arises, military um, support. The, the military presence in the east is essentially um, on the the Russian military presence is mostly on the Russian side of the border, naturally enough. There are units, however, that one constantly hears of in Donetsk and Luhansk, which seem to be rapid reaction forces, uh, Russian units which are prepared to move fast if their separatist <coughs> colleagues get into trouble. There were two well-discussed incidents of this last year, one at the Donetsk, uh, near the Donetsk airport, and the one later on the southern border line of control. Um, these forces seem to be permanently based there, as, long as, as well as some GRU units, which for some reason or other I, I heard mostly about in um, Luhansk. The DNR and the LNR um, were very worried about the situation with the Minsk agreements late last year. They um, felt that there was a chance of a breakthrough in negotiations. And this was made them extremely um, nervous. They were trying very hard to find out from anybody they could contact, including people like me, what was going on. 
Now they're more reassured. They have the feeling that the Russians are essentially back on side at this point in the situation and that the Russian demand for full and literal implementation of Minsk is going to work to their advantage. They are now beginning to offer the line that seeing Ukraine is not going to implement Min Minsk fully and literally that the only thing the DNR can do can be to move towards integration with Russia. One final thing, a more general theoretical note if you like, I spent a lot of my time looking at the East, um, as well as worrying desperately about the, what's happening in Kiev, I must say. But um, what I do not think we always pay enough attention to is that the Russian involvement in Eastern Ukraine is just part of a continuum of Russian behavior, which will move. At the moment, the entities are very useful to Russia to keep Kiev off balance, keep it on a war economy footing, keeping it confronting a large hostile force over 500 kilometers of a front line. In the long term, um, the, as the separatists well know, they're not going to be needed anymore. Um, the next stage that the Russians lay out both to people like me who visit Moscow and who also to their separatist colleagues is the longer term is the belief that Russia can pull back Ukraine from its Western choice, its European choice. This will happen during, due to economic collapse and other issues, subversion. And this will be an important stepping stone to breaking what Russia views in its most recent security doctrine as the attempts to contain, encircle, and punish Russia for its internal and external independent policies. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. That was actually a good reminder of what's at stake here, because obviously we're focused very much on the Minsk process. We're not talking today about Crimea. We're not talking today about Russia's policy towards the whole region. But I think that's a very good reminder for all of us that this is, this is actually what's going on in the big picture. So without further ado, I would like to turn it over to um, Adrian Karadnitsky next. Um, and again, if I can ask for as much brevity as possible. I've, been, I've, I've asked Anders to poke me if I go. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll so. also lean forward helpfully, and the that will be your work. cue. Um, Thank you. Um, good morning, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen and friends. Um, I, in, in, in this, I'm going to focus a little bit on the the Minsk process itself, uh, most of us have very firm opinions about its complexities. We all know that it came about as, an, as a very imperfect and deeply flawed settlement at a time of duress when Russia was, Russian troops, uh, regular forces were advancing on Ukrainian positions in Debaltsevo and elsewhere. And this was negotiated, I guess, around the Munich Security Forum uh, uh, at, a, at a very uh, uh, peak uh, period of, uh, of tension. And uh, we know that it carries within it a lot of, uh, I would say, illogical, uh, out of sequence ideas. It's not a great roadmap. Uh, and I was looking for an epigram to describe uh, or to appropriate the, the the, 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 the entire complex of the Minsk process and the work of the contact group. And I could only find it in Rogers and Hammerstein. And uh, uh, for those of you who remember The Sound of Music, and it's, uh, 
how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Uh, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? And I think we're, we're dealing with moonbeams and we're dealing with clouds because the Russian position constantly keeps shifting. And while presumably there are interests in the Donbass that have been described very adequately by Paul Quinn Judge, it is very clear that none of those interests trump uh, appro I apologize for the for the word. It's not an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 none of those none of those interests uh, uh, are overweening and uh, higher than uh, Russia's influence on what the LNR and DNR uh, does. These people, in the end, are clients of the Russian state, and some of the things I'll say about the uh, contact group process uh, under underscores this. Uh, so. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went to uh, Solomyansk in Kiev. I went to Solomyanska Plosh, Solomyanska Square, uh, to a, a high rise and to a, an unmarked uh, office where there is a very splendid vista of uh, Kiev and a beautiful uh, um, uh, contemporary furniture, uh, tasteful and refined. And in it, I met with Roman Besmertny, the uh, long-standing Ukrainian uh, political leader who is the contact group uh, person in the bloc dealing with the political reforms. And the political reforms seem to be a major focus now of European interest and of European, I would say, urgings for Ukraine to, uh, to, move, to move forward. He and, uh, he, ha he and I had a, uh, a long conversation about what actually goes on in the contact group. And while we can focus on the illogic of the many, uh, you know, the, the non-linear the non uh, 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 the way that uh, the, the uh, Minsk agreement defines reaching, uh, reaching a, a final accord, uh, there is a, a non-linearity in the way the, the process occurs behind closed doors. First of all, it's the unusual fact that there are two states which in effect are in an undeclared war at each other, uh, with each other, uh, one of those states, Russia, posing as, in a sense, an, arbit an arbitrator and a mediator for the Minsk, uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the LNR and DNR. And then you have this ineffable Maria-like thing called the OSCE, which has no real diplomatic clout or standing and is not really there as an arbitrator. It's there as a sort of facilitator. And so everything goes on primarily behind closed doors. There is no full reporting on the progress that has been made. And the, re the, the sad reality is in this political process, it's just complete linearity. In, normally in diplomatic practice, uh, uh, agreements are reached you know, paragraph by paragraph. They're initialed, and you move on to the next. But according to Mr. Besmertny, the way the process works is certain agreements are reached. There, there is consensus on them. New, uh, new paragraphs are added, and then the earlier ones are reopened because primarily from the Russian side's view, the new paragraphs affect the, the old. And as a result, there is not, no linearity but uh, uh, circularity. The second interesting dimension was the behavior of Mr. Uh, Pushilin, Dennis, Dennis Pushilin, who is uh, part of that uh, uh, block and part of that discussion and actually one of the, uh, the, 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 key spoke, the key representative in this uh, process. And as you know, under the uh, uh, trilateral contact group process, the people from the DNR and LNR cannot speak unless there is consensus for them to speak. But sometimes they do speak. And the way it sort of works is they're sitting there with their smartphones. And before they speak, there are people on the other side, on the Russian side, 
typing vigorously on their devices, and suddenly these guys are looking at them and reading out uh, particular messages or making particular points. Uh, the, the, recently, Mr. Pushilin was spotted coming out of uh, you know, uh, the Kremlin, out of the presidential uh, lair, it's no, there's no question that there is a direction, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that's another, another part of the, the process and what makes it so ineffable. But the non-sequencing, non-linearity uh, of the roadmap, the uh, failed and flawed uh, Minsk II process notwithstanding, and my deep skepticism about uh, uh, where Russia, that Russia wants a settlement, and I fully agree probably with the consensus view. I'm a skeptic that Russia wants an agreement. This is simply a process to show, to create the optics of, of goodwill to get uh, sanctions, uh, sanctions lifted. Nevertheless, I think that the Minsk process is the only game in town. I think that the Ukrainians, if they're under pressure from their Western allies and uh, risk losing support for renewal of sanctions, potentially, or risk enthusiasm for the uh, Ukrainian earnestness in keeping to the Minsk process, I think the Ukrainian uh, government should consider uh, bending uh, with the wind. And here I'm going to say something that may be considered controversial, but let me lay out an approach. Already, the Ukrainians have put themselves in a particular position, which is that the first reading of the constitutional changes about the special districts has already been passed, and to reopen it and change legislation would require a would, would delay it by another, an, another year. You basically can only move forward with the legislation that has currently uh, gone through, through the reading. So it does not have any uh, transitional provisions that would be linked to the core issues that I believe are, are sort of the bottom line of Minsk, which is control of borders, removal of heavy weapons, and removal of all foreign fighters. But I believe there is a way for the Ukrainians to pass those constitutional changes for, to even pass an electoral law, but to, in, in the passing of the electoral law, to create specific conditions, not about the holding of elections, because the holding of elections are a matter that is in the Minsk Accords uh, delegated or designated to the OSCE ODIHR, and, and presumably, if we believe in the integrity of the OSCE, we hope that the OSCE and ODIR would not certify that an environment of intimidation is a place where free and fair elections have been held. But that, that is not an issue, in effect, for the Ukrainians. That's an issue for creating the circumstances for, uh, for an election. And I think that the Ukrainians could simply add a provision to the electoral law that an election can be held if it is designated free and fair and recognized as such by the ODIR and the OSCE mechanisms, <coughs> but that all, the, the Central Election Commission would not certify and the Ukrainian state would not recognize the coming into office of these elected officials under conditions where they cannot exercise their sovereign right, which is to say, no matter what you think of whoever the people in that area and in that vote elect, they, these people will not be able to act sovereignly so long as there are thousands of Russian troops and Russian agents on that territory, so long as there are heavy weapons, tanks, armored personnel carriers on that territory, and so long as Ukraine doesn't, uh, doesn't secure the border. So I believe that instead that the Minsk agreement is flawed, 
it's, it has the wrong kind of sequencing, but by in, injecting this kind of a solution, you can set it more or less right. Ukraine could relieve the pressure that it has from some of the Europeans, and Ukraine should bargain with the Europeans to say that if Ukraine passes this kind of legislation, there will be a firm commitment to continue with the sanctions until such time as the full process is, 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 uh, is, uh, uh, is met, and that this should not be just a matter for the uh, Normandy uh, uh, countries. This should be a process for the for the entire uh, Euro-Atlantic community that should be standing behind Ukraine. With that, I will uh, defer uh, and avoid a poke from Anna. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. Um, So, And I I will put the foreign minister on alert, uh, the deputy foreign minister on alert, um, because, of course, we would love to hear your reaction to this proposal. Um, So, Anders, please, if you could give us um, succinctly your perspective on the economic dynamic and the pressures on both sides. Thank you very much. It's uh, uh, quite important to talk about things uh, because we are seeing a terrible humanitarian and economic suffering in Donbass. If you take the broad uh, features of the region, the the four and a half million people used to live in this area. Uh, One and a half million have fled to Ukraine. Uh, You have two Russian numbers for how many have fled to Russia half a million or one million, nothing in between, which leaves a certain doubt about the nature of the figures. And about 100,000 have fled uh, uh, to other uh, countries. Uh, the, the Ukrainian and other countries' numbers are from the UN and quite reliable. About 1,000 people have been killed, according to the UN. All this is on the Ukrainian side. We don't know how many Russian soldiers have been killed. The Ukrainian security services say 1,600. Nobody seems to keep any number on the thousands of Russian volunteers who have been there. Very many have been killed. I don't know if Paul has any number on it. And the OSCE cannot be in most of the territory. So what has happened to the economy? I would distinguish between two very different Russian uh, policies, one up till October last year and one after. The first policy was chaos. We are not there. Uh, we don't do anything there. Uh, so uh, uh, let them stew in the juices. That's uh, probably how one can characterize the Russian policy up till uh, October. We have now seen 50 humanitarian convoys. We don't really know what these convoys are doing. There are different uh, versions and um, proposals. Uh, The Ukrainian security services say that 20 uh, factories have been looted and taken to Russia. This suggests that uh, uh, they don't really want to utilize this uh, uh, territory. They're taken to Novosibirsk and St. Petersburg. These are uh, essentially armaments factories. But there are very few armaments uh, factories in this territory. It's not really part of a, a, a military industrial complex. What you mainly have here are mines uh, and, met- and metallurgical uh, factories, uh, electricity generation, uh, and, uh, and the, the like. Uh, this area used to be uh, 16% of Ukraine's industrial production. 10% of GDP. 
and this uh, had fallen to 3% of GDP. So most of the Ukrainian decline in GDP comes from the war in uh, the war damage in, <coughs> in Eastern Ukraine. So the Russian uh, policy was uh, first blow up infrastructure. Russian engineering troops have, uh, in the summer of 2014, systematically blew up uh, railroad and uh, road uh, uh, bridges so that you couldn't really transport the coal, uh, which was a major uh, problem. Uh, all the banks were happily robbed by the rebels. All uh, uh, <coughs> the ATM machines uh, smashed up in one way or the other. So uh, Donbass moved to a pure cash economy. Originally, uh, both hryvnia and ruble without any particular uh, order. Minimal financing from Russia uh, for the first uh, one and a half years. And uh, uh, what is strange here is that the big Ukrainian companies continue to operate under Ukrainian law. Uh, they were not conf confiscated. They paid Ukrainian uh, taxes, and they paid the workers through Ukrainian banks if they could come over to Ukrainian-controlled territory so that they could take out the money from uh, uh, ATM machines, because no, no ATM machines function in, uh, in the, uh, Don, Donbass. So this was completely different from Crimea. Crimea was taken over by the Russian government. Uh, private companies were confiscated uh, by the state. It was not this bandit rule that also well uh, de described. And um, there was a clear policy. There was substantial Russian government uh, financing. The government financing for uh, Crimea from Russia is probably $4 billion a year for uh, uh, social and uh, uh, public costs. So then what happened? In October, there was a complete change in the Russian policy towards uh, uh, Donbass economically. Uh, the responsibility was moved from the presidential administration, which has, uh, as most presidential administrations, relatively small administrative capacity, to the, uh, to the government to the Council of Ministers. And the person who's responsible there is Deputy Prime Minister uh, Dmitry Kozak, who is uh, generally responsible for regional affairs, but is also responsible for uh, other uh, or frozen conflicts uh, in Transnistria, South Ossetia, Abkhazia. That's Kozak. Therefore, he's on the, the Western uh, sanction uh, list. But it meant that the whole Russian government was involved. At least five ministries have got clear responsibilities. It's all done by the state. It's not private Russian companies that are moving in. The private Ukrainian companies are still active there. And uh, what has happened is that if you take uh, Renat Akhmet of System Capital Management, is, uh, has probably about 100,000 employees in this uh, territory. They are still employed. They have not been laid off. The system capital management 
is paying their salaries in Ukraine. And uh, their capacity went down to, say, 30%. Now it's up to 50% or perhaps a bit uh, more. Uh, you can see uh, DTEC, uh, uh, Renat Akhmetov's uh, energy company that gets its uh, coal from uh, Donbass, is now getting the coal, which uh, previously was a, a serious crisis for the company that it couldn't get enough uh, uh, coal from uh, Donbass in order to produce uh, electricity in <coughs> uh, uh, free uh, Ukraine. So this is being done with the support of Moscow, to a considerable extent against uh, 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 the locals. And from uh, in October, Moscow decided this is a serious humanitarian crisis. We can't have this blowing up in our face. We need to put money. So from the 1st of November, uh, Moscow is paying uh, pensions, is paying uh, public uh, wages, and um, now it has become a pure rub ruble economy. Uh, so, and this has uh, meant, as I mentioned, some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, economic recovery. So then I come to the final question, what does this mean for the future? As far as I can understand, it, uh, Moscow keeps two options open. Uh, we could believe them and say that this is really just to take care of a humanitarian catastrophe so that it doesn't uh, become too awful uh, and uh, that they are holding it uh, open uh, for the future, but there is still a possibility of, uh, uh, <clears throat> of uh, letting it go to Ukraine. The other option is that it becomes some kind of uh, frozen conflict that uh, Dmitry Kozak is uh, used uh, uh, to handle in uh, other uh, territories. Banking has started functioning again, and this is the same bank that operates in Abkhazia. So this, uh, uh, there is a restoration of elementary order, uh, but it's, uh, it's not uh, promising. And what this means is that on Donbass, remains quite a terrible in a terrible situation. Uh, the numbers that I mentioned are quite difficult to get hold of. There is, uh, it's alleged that 400,000 pensioners who are officially registered in Ukraine, in fact, live in occupied Donbass, and they get their small pensions both in Ukraine and in Donbass. And frankly, they deserve it, yeah. because these are very small pensions on the on uh, both uh, sides, but this means that the numbers are uh, very foggy. So why would Russia like to give up Don, uh, Donbass? Uh, three reasons. First, the cost is, uh, is high and uh, in, uh, uh, just uh, to maintain it. Secondly, uh, financial sanctions are tied to uh, uh, Russian aggression in Donbass into the Minsk uh, process. So therefore, if Russia wants to ease uh, uh, sanctions or get rid of them, uh, then it uh, needs to give up Donbass. And then finally, perhaps the biggest reason, uh, 
people like me think that uh, Russia's, uh, uh, Putin's ultimate objective in Donbass is to uh, in Ukraine is to destabilize uh, the regime. And uh, can you imagine a more poison chalice than uh, Donbass? Give it back. You have a, a complete disorder, a big cost. My guess is that this would be 10 to 20 billion dollars in elementary uh, uh, reconstruction of uh, bridges and uh, uh, buildings that have been uh, uh, destroyed. And there will be a political destabilization of uh, Ukraine. So why not give it back? Thank you. Well, Andres, that was excellent, excellent contributions from all of our panelists. And, you know, as we are all, we have all become or we should by now have become accustomed to uh, Russia and um, President Putin uh, surprising us. So that would be a surprise move indeed. I'm sure the Deputy Foreign Minister would agree um, if they suddenly decided to really implement Minsk with seriousness and give the Donbass back to Ukraine. Still leaves open, of course, the question of Crimea. Um, so I would like to um, ask the Foreign Minister if he could, um, I'm going to take the moderators, um, prerogative and, and ask him if he could comment um, first with regard to Assistant Secretary Newland's testimony yesterday, which I interpreted as signaling that security should come first before elections in particular um, and also before constitutional amendments. Um, but of course, as you heard from uh, Andre, uh, Adrian, rather, um, there could be another possibility which would be sort of a compromise where you would not necessarily have security first. You could have some kind of elections, if I understand uh, correctly, but that the OSCE would be the um, ultimate uh, arbiter of whether those elections were free and fair, and therefore um, there's some room for compromise. So if I could ask uh, the Deputy Foreign Minister to comment on those two issues and anything else that you feel that you'd like to get out before we move to the general question and answer. Thank you. Uh, you know, for some reason, I, I both I know both Adrian and Victoria Nolan, but this time I will accompany with with her in her in her testimony. I believe the security should come first. What bothers me mostly at uh, this underperformance of the Minsk process. Why I'm bringing it because when when we talk about the first, second, and third things by the order, we are talking that you know there is no perfect uh, ceasefire. So we move into the next one. There is no perfect withdrawal. Then we've been pushed to move further. There is no perfect withdrawal of the troops. By this, we're creating a situation when the elections also might not be perfect, perfect. So we might have somebody elected. We don't even know who those, if they're Ukrainians, who they represent, and how many, how many people actually voted for them. At the end, we'll have somebody will be ruling this, and I have in mind even worse scenario. It will be used in another Crimea scenario. Somebody will be gathered to take the decision, a sort of referendum. We don't know who are those people. We don't know who are those uh, officially, semi-officially elected. This is getting very, very dangerous. So what we are trying to achieve when we are talking to our partners and believe they do understand us, that we have to re-engage re with the basics, first of all, to stop killing each other, then, if it is the mission is needed, that's the mission will help. And then go step by step of Minsk. Unfortunately, after almost a year and a half, we have to reconsider the Minsk. We are not changing it. We are just telling people and telling our partners and Moscow in the first that until we, we utilize all the 
not perfect, but at least to the maximum we can in real life, we should not move to another steps and create uh, the new reality on the ground, which is uh, bad enough already. Okay, thank you very much, um, Mr. Minister. Um, does anyone on the panel want to just com make a, uh, any comments in response to what the other panelists have presented before we open it up? Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I will. Okay, go ahead. Um, I don't want to be a Cassandra, fan doctor, <laughs> but um, why would Russia agree to any of these, these suggestions? I've spent last week in Brussels and the conversations there with, with some of the countries which are very committed to keeping the sanctions going is that they say they can probably hold the line for another six months. It's getting tighter and tighter all the time. Um, Russia obviously knows that. That would be one disincentive for them to follow through with anything. And the, it's since the second Minsk agreement was signed, it's been very clear that this was, if it wasn't dictated, crudely speaking, by Russia, it had everything that they wanted in an agreement. Um, this was uh, quite clear from the very start, and some of the Western ambassadors who were very committed to the Ukrainian side and very much involved in that, in watching or participating in those agreements, were quite scathing about the risks that those, the new agreement posed to Ukraine itself. One of the senior ambassadors there described the agreement as assisted euthanasia of a sovereign state. There's a quite clear awareness that this is a very serious situation. And what if Russia just says, no, you sign the agreement, you implement it. What happens next? Well, I, I don't disagree with, with your point. What I'm reacting to is not as much pressure on Russia, but the pressure on Ukraine from European partners who are really pushing for this constitutional yeah. change to happen in the way that it was yeah. agreed at Minsk too. And what I'm suggesting is by taking the kind of mechanism that I suggested, that Ukraine should also negotiate with the West a long-term commitment to sanctions, not a six-month process, but we're going all in. It's a very hard thing to change the Constitution. We're changing the electoral law. We're allowing the OSCE, when it feels the atmosphere is right, to hold these elections. But we will not recognize the, the, these officials coming into office until such time as the key provisions of Minsk are not met. And simply to create a grand bargain, not with Russia, but to create a grand bargain with the West to seal and to give a signal to Russia that we're not every six months going to have some kind of you know, wobbliness and a potential that the, the sanctions regime will fall, but that there is a very clear-cut sequencing. And, and in return for the Ukrainian uh, gestures, there is an ironclad commitment by the West to have a long-term sanctions regime until the whole package is done. But the problem is the EU makes decisions by consensus. They are watching right now Cyprus, Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy, saying time is running out, we have to move on to other things. How, what can be done to keep these people on side, and what can be done to well, make Russia is, amenable to the The answer is, the, in the, the absence of that kind of European commitment, Ukraine should not pursue this kind of policy. Okay. I'm not suggesting so, Ukraine should just unilaterally yeah, yeah. make these okay. concessions. I want to give, I want to give Anders a, a chance to just uh, jump in as well, but then really we need to hear from the rest of the audience. Um, but I, I want to say, I just want to put a little, I'm, I'm a moderator, so I'm not supposed to have much of an opinion here, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, I, I don't think that we should put too much faith in the OSCE. I put a really strong note of caution there, because it's really an organization, cons you know, constituted by member states, including Russia. So 
um, I would not leave too much responsibility to the OSCE. Um, having worked for the OSCE, and I have a lot of um, uh, a lot of respect for the organization. It can provide a very important function as it has thus far, but I would I would caution us. Um, not to expect too much from it, Anders. Yeah, a few comments on uh, sanctions. Uh, uh, I completely agree with Adrian that it's a bizarre situation that the European Union needs to discuss prolongation of the sanctions every half year. The obvious case should be as, as it is in the US. You keep the, pen, uh, the sanctions until something positive happens, and then you reconsider them. And, uh, it gives strong discussion in Europe. Having said that, the general lesson of sanctions is that they are very sticky. If you have imposed sanctions, you normally maintain them because normally the result is not achieved and then you look silly if you abandon the sanctions, you look weak. And specifically in this case, as it functions here in the US, everything is done with executive order when it comes to sanctions and it's done by Treasury. The Treasury has very little role in national security if it does not impose sanctions. So Treasury is gung-ho on sanctions and will not give them up. It's as uh, hardcore on these matters as, uh, as pe uh, Pentagon. Therefore, sanctions are not controversial in, in uh, uh, the US. Uh, and if the European Union then would ease the sanctions, the European Union would look even more wobbly than it is, which is bad enough. So, therefore, I'm convinced that the sanctions will continue for a long time. If you look up in the US, the sanctions will not be eased in an election year, and they will not be eased in January, whereby a new president has barely come in. So, we can say for sure that the sanctions will go on at least until July uh, last year, if the Russians do not make any major Okay, well you may be uh, preempting some of the questions that we'll get from the audience about sanctions, but I think the big issue really is sequencing, and if we can agree with our European allies to stick with Ukraine and put security first before elections, before constitutional change, etc., that, that, that is the most logical way to proceed, and we just frankly haven't, we've allowed a lot of uh, incoherence and, and questions to be hanging in the air because we haven't been clear about this and we haven't tried to rally together with our European allies on that. And I would say on sanctions, our system is advantageous certainly from a government perspective because it's up to the Russians to demonstrate that U.S. sanctions should be lifted. Unfortunately, in the European context, it's constantly up to the European governments to demonstrate that sanctions should be extended, and that's, that's the ultimate problem. So um, without further ado, we have a little less than 30 minutes. And I would like to open it up to the audience for questions. And I assume we have a microphone somewhere um, roaming around to catch up with. Okay, here we go. And please identify okay, yourself. Th thank if you, you. Would thank for you, Sergey Alexander, Let me be provocative, as usual. <laughs> I like. I, I agree. I completely agree. Thank you for the nice presentations. I, uh, I think we got a smell of what's going on in the past. And I agree that in fact Ukraine has a choice. Either it is a frozen conflict, or one way or another, Ukraine will reach its target and will absorb and us back, Eastern Ukraine back, to its, to its governance, to its territory. And uh, my provocation is the following. What is the downside risk for Ukraine? 
Okay, why do not implement all those legislation immediately and direct them? Held elections, to held uh, constitutional amendments, everything. Minsk agreement is not implemented unless Russian troops are over and Ukraine keeps control over the border. What's the reason who who is governing these territories at the moment? Kushilin, Hadakovsky, someone else? It doesn't matter. Are they elected? Are they not elected? If this territory is controlled by Russians, is the police not controlled by Ukrainians? It is not a part of Ukraine. It is a frozen conflict with military tensions. For, the, for Ukraine, the price is to get its sovereignty over Donbass. And Ukraine has to pay the price. What's, what's the reason to delay with those legislations? I agree that we may invent some delays in, okay, let's, let's have elections, but unless Russian troops are in territory, they are not officials. But what's the reason? It doesn't change the situation. Okay. The situation is, is it territory controlled by Ukrainians or not? Okay. So thank you very much for the question. I think um, if the Deputy Foreign Minister can uh, start with the answer and then maybe quick answers from anyone who would like to respond from the stage. Very quick answer. It's not about control only. It's the quality of this control first and the demands of, of Russians are put in front, like the federalization of Ukraine or veto rights on the foreign policy decisions. This is what they meant by, by the new constitutional order. That's what they wanted. We don't even call order. We, we call it, as it means, called special status. It's not order. It's not the right of these people to govern our foreign policy, which will immediately mean that Ukraine is not going to European Union or NATO. These are the things we have to keep in mind, and that's why we believe that the uh, serious, serious thought should be given before the election. And again, we had six million people living in this territory. Now we have two of those millions inside Ukraine, one as was mentioned in, in Russia. Who's actually voting for and who will be charting the future of this part, an essential part of Ukraine, or as the part of future federal, what Russia is insisting, federal Ukraine, and where it will bring us. We have to think not just today and getting any sort of control. We should think responsibly and thinking what would happen in 10, 15 years. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Minister. Can, can I say, I mean, uh, I agree, but the, you know, the Minsk Accords do not refer to federalization. They refer only to decentralization. And as far as I understand, it is the position of the Ukrainian government, and there, are, there is legislation that, that uh, supports this kind of decentralization. So if Russia is revising Minsk, then that's another argument uh, to, to shore up support on the part of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the allies of Ukraine, who some of whom are becoming wobbly. So, you know, I basically agree that fundamentally what Ukraine should be aiming for is the removal of heavy weapons, tanks, armored personnel carriers, their complete removal from Ukrainian, from, from LNR, DNR territory, and by logic, perhaps their return to Ukraine, because the LNR and DNR say that these were seized from the, from the Ukrainian forces during uh, combat in the early stages. But even if they're removed to Russia for some strange reason, since they're allegedly not Russian, uh, Russian heavy weapons, uh, that is a, that's a crucial component of, of, of the Minsk Accords. The second is the complete removal of the very substantial Russian military and security presence on the territory. And the third is full Ukrainian control of borders. 
and then you're going to have an enclave. Yes, that's the bargain. And the question is, if Ukraine doesn't want to have a bargain, then there is no point to the Minsk process. You will end up with an enclave, but I believe that if Ukraine moves and reforms over time in the absence of a Russian presence, you'll have a kind of a similar process as what occurred in Transnistria, where 90% of trade and activity is with the EU and with, uh, and with uh, uh, Moldova. And the only uh, reason that there isn't a closer reintegration of that enclave is the presence of Russian forces. So if you get rid of that, it may take 10 years, it may take 20 years. If Ukraine is a relatively successful country, that enclave will, by its internal democratic processes and internal electoral processes, change its own, uh, change its own regime and put its own regime Adrian, in. that's why they want to have it within the Ukrainian constitution. You see, they also, they are not silly, not stupid. They do understand it, and that's why they're not happy with the idea we brought, to bring it to the sort of transferring uh, uh, portion of the constitution. They want to have it in the body of constitution. All the things you are talking about that can be changed. No, if they get in the constitutions, they won't be that easily changed, because the part of Ukraine at this Donbass won't allow it to, to be changed. This is the whole plan, and you probably also see it. Imagine you, would, Americans, would have to bargain with your own constitution. It is difficult from the political point of view, internal political point of view, and it's extremely basically it's wrong to have it to happen. Well, but I think, but on the logic of what you say, is you're saying that it's the position of the Ukrainian government that the Minsk Accords are unacceptable to the Ukrainian government because they carry some of no, these... No, I didn't say it's unacceptable. Well, what I said, did. we are not happy with that. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen myself when Lavrov was telling our minister and ministers both, Germany and France, that, guys, we all observe how it happened. You're not happy. So go and do whatever you want with that. We are happy with that. So when you talk about that Minsk is not serving Russian needs, it's not true. At least it was recognized by Lavrov himself. Okay, thank you very much. Um, would either of the no. two of you like to? Okay. All right, so another question from the audience. Hi, good morning, thank you. Uh, Justin Tomchuk, US-Ukraine Foundation. Why is it that Germany and France continue to bilaterally negotiate with Russia in the Minsk Agreement, rather than deferring that to Federica Mogherini and the European Union as a whole? Thank you. Uh, and the question's addressed to the whole panel, okay. Uh, well, sounds like a question for you, yes, I yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe the foreign, the deputy foreign minister would like to start? No, I'm okay with that question, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, I think it is a good question. I'm the moderator, so I'm not supposed to comment. But um, you're allowed to. Uh, but I, I think uh, having a more unified, strong European voice would be useful. Or having the EU join, frankly, those two other countries as they have in the Iranian uh, negotiating process would also be useful. Um, certainly, having somebody there who saw in, 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 inside the, the, the room, if you will, the negotiating room, to understand better what the dynamics are and what the stumbling blocks are, uh, I think would be useful probably for the Ukrainian government in particular. Um, any understanding? Well, the Ukrainian standard demand has been that it should be a, a Geneva format, meaning that uh, the US and the European Union should be involved. This is, of course, completely wrong that uh, uh, EU uh, or Western uh, policy towards uh, Ukraine and Russia is essentially done by uh, Germany because uh, France does not play a major role in these negotiations, seem to be happy to be part of it. And it's uh, really a, 
uh, just seconding uh, a German, this is not how it should be done. And if you compare with uh, the Orange Revolution, uh, then it was Javier Solana, uh, who represented the European Union, who was the major representative, and he was seconded by uh, President uh, Alexander Kwasniewski from Poland, who simply had developed the habit of meeting President Kuchma once a month. And therefore, he was the obvious European uh, authority in this case. Now we really have only one leader in Europe, I'm sorry to say, Angela Merkel. I'm happy that she's there. But I'm so, sorry that uh, there are no more leaders who can uh, play, uh, play that role. Uh, the, the current leadership uh, of the European uh, Union is very weak, and therefore it is uh, not uh, really uh, playing that role. The US is playing the same role as it did in the Orange Revolution. That is a very little role. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it would be very good, as the U Ukrainian government has uh, demanded, for a format where the US uh, comes in, but of course the Kremlin is against, and for some reason the Kremlin is allowed to decide that, which is obviously wrong. Uh, I would just add that there should also be some pressure to uh, put a European presence into the contact group process. I, I believe that the OSCE is too weak an interlocutor. It's not even an interlocutor, it's sort of a convener, and there has to be a presence, and then you basically have two adversaries, and there really is not a powerful uh, uh, arbitrator, so to speak. Yeah, I, I would I would really agree that there is a big role that the U, that the EU could fill, regardless of whether you think they're they're as strong as they might be or not. Um, we've seen excellent work that they've done actually because we have our ambassador from Serbia here in the Balkans that the EU has done. So in in other difficult situations. So I think um, thank you for the question. <laughs> Any other questions? All the way back there. Thanks. Uh, John Rugarber, Sice, real quick question. Um, since the large sectors of pop the population in Donetsk and Lugansk did not support the separatist leadership, and since Donbass is facing a humanitarian crisis, is it possible for the international community to launch a sustained humanitarian assistance campaign with Kiev distributing the supplies and then use the media to show? or to maximize the effects of such an operation in order to further weaken the separatist leadership in the eyes of the people and also achieve a short-term gain. Okay, so I think maybe we can start with um, Paul addressing that. Um, I, I do know that there have been attempts to provide assistance um, to those regions and that, of course, much very recently, uh, I don't know if you want to speak about your own situation, but certainly the, the international uh, humanitarian groups have been uh, barred from the region. But if you could, Paul, start. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, it's all possible. Practically, it's not at the moment. Um, virtually every international organization or major NGO has been um, denied the possibility to keep functioning in Luhansk or Donetsk. Médecins Sans Frontières and a number of others are trying to renegotiate their access to the area. This is not happening right now. One of the main sources of non-Russian humanitarian aid at the moment going into Donetsk, and perhaps the only one, is from um, Renat Akhmetov. The idea of doing this is fine. The, the execution of it is very complex at this point. It would probably, if you wanted to force your way in, it would be an extremely complex, difficult situation, and it would be a major 
aggravation of the, the military conflict. It, the idea of further discrediting the separatists is theoretically an interesting one. But my one problem at the moment, my one concern at the moment is given the Ukrainian government's continuing lack of outreach to the residents of the East who are not separatists, um, this is going to gradually make the Ukrainian cause in the eyes of those residents less and less valid and attractive. And we are going to find people in the long run starting to look at the separatists, if not as legitimate, at least as the alternative on the ground with which they have to live. Can, can I make a point? Uh, Ukraine has uh, no uh, effective policy in dealing with the one and a half million internally displaced. There is no central mechanism of communication with these people. There is no ongoing, camp, you know, they're affected by the local environment in which they've settled. But there's no attempt to preserve them as a kind of a community where in the event there would be a breakthrough that they could yeah. come back and to play a positive role. It's, and this is one place where the international community could provide some resources. There is no website where these people are together. If you're in a community, you basically have to accidentally find people uh, or you know, there are some vo small voluntary efforts. But on a national basis, Ukrainians can't tell you where specific people, uh, where specific people have settled. Some of them have already settled and created residency in new places, so they may not return. Some of them are uh, temporarily displaced and expect to return. But again, there's no dialogue with them. There's no specific uh, set of social initiatives that, that help them integrate. And if these people are alienated where they are, when they come back, they will continue to preserve the ideology of the enclave. And I think it's yeah. extremely important for the international community to, to direct some more resources to, the, to that part of the population, which is actually the majority of the people who live there. Okay, uh, we'll give the Deputy Minister uh, a chance to uh, comment on this before we go to the last question. Thank you very much. I, I agree with all the criticisms that Ukraine do not have the policy. We do have policy, the implementation is a different thing. And uh, just give you an example, you're talking about uh, do we have the outreach for them, the means uh, to outreach. We have to tell you that the internet is controlled, the biggest TV uh, tower in the region, in Donetsk itself, so we don't have the TV coverage. Going outreach and going to talk to people over the over the uh, line, we had a couple of reporters being taken hostages just recent months. So it's not that simple as you see it in Kiev, trying to outreach people, but I agree with you that this lack of communication is, is you know, not, not helping us to reach for their minds and hearts. How to deal with that? We, we still have to realize how we deal with our parliamentarians and politicians who are reminding us, foreign affairs at least, that these people are we are killing our soldiers, the people are shooting at us still, and it's very difficult to work in these harsh political conditions within Ukraine. In other, in other ideas, why would we cut out the, this part of Ukraine altogether. This is a very dangerous thing we have to fight, and this fight is within the Ukraine itself, in the Kiev, in the minds of the rest of Ukraine, who believe that we are fighting for the better future for Ukraine. These people do not want to go to Ukraine. Why would we send our children to die over there? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, yeah, I think uh, Paul whispered to me Facebook, but clearly the internet is another area, an avenue to reach people, although I don't know what the computer internet saturation is. It's pretty good. Pretty good, okay. Um, so we have time for one more question, and I know you had your hand up for a while. And please, again, introduce yourself for the audience. Thank you. I am Ambassador of Lithuania in the United States, and uh, 
I could uh, probably I will start from uh, saying that the Vice Minister mentioned a lot of uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania who was just visiting, and that's the reason. I'm sorry that that's the reason, actually, for Vice Minister not to be present here. But I could witness it also that, uh, yes, explosions actually happening. So, you know, and I, I'm still operating in metric system. So the minister, what he was telling that it, uh, some, some explosions were actually happening just 300 meters from their visiting place, you know. So it's really something, you know, which is underground. It's not uh, very theoretical here. But then when you visit there, put your helmet on your head, you know, and uh, everything else, and you see the explosions actually happening. And uh, of course, sometimes, sometimes they hit actually people and they die. Uh, unfortunately today. But my question would be, of course, uh, you know, it's a time game, as always, you know, so, uh, and kind of uh, Europeans, of, of course, uh, I would say we are putting it in half a year. So <laughs> actually, Lithuania was supporting at least a year, you know, of sanctions, and then if anything positive happens, you know, we always could go back and uh, change something, you know, so just destroy it. But now that was very difficult, and that was, uh, once again, a compromise, you know, reached uh, half a year. So, of course, we are concentrating once again what's happening in two months. You know, and, uh, but I, I do believe we will be still able to. I don't see the Minsk happening. Of course, I, I don't see that anyone could say that Minsk will be implemented by uh, mid of this year. No, it's not. So sanctions probably will stay there, even though that we get once again, you know, all kind of skirmishes. Will Europe will be, and it's all at all time about Europe. Will all, Europe will be able to prolong those? You know, but I do believe that we will be able to prolong it, but then what's next, you know, once again, another half a year, you know, what are the dynamics, how they So what's play? next about, about the... Yeah, about after, the after July, because currently it's June, you know, all, all, once again it's two months, but what after? What would be in your eyes, because clearly we are lacking in, in some motivation, you know, for, for Russia, I would say, you know, to do something. So the sanctions, are those, you know, we will be prolonging half a year, half a year. Are those sufficient motivations still? It's a single motivation so far, you know, but, okay. but should we find something extra, you know, okay. just to so, make it uh, happening, actually? So sorry to, to, I'm going to try to paraphrase. I think what you're asking is, what would it take for the Russians to actually start earnestly implementing Minsk or for us to make some progress with them? More sanctions or something else? So Anders, maybe since you're the sanctions man, you can start and then... Paul, yeah, and I'll give everyone a chance to, 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 to address this and, and maybe have a final word, and then we'll close. Thank you. Uh, i start from the Russian economy side. I think that we should expect the unexpected with regard to Moscow, because the economic situation is terrible. Uh, real wages last year fell by almost 10%. You can't continue like this. The Russians have had an expectation from 1998 and 2008. Crisis is something that lasts for one year. We can manage it. Now there is a sudden realization that this is no longer true. What do we do? Uh, you have three big problems for the Russian economy. First is kleptocracy, and that's wholly because that's the Putin system. Second, you have the falling oil price. You can't do much about that. It might go up, uh, which is why the Russians don't do more as yet. And then you have the sanctions. The sanctions mean that Russia has to pay off 60 to 80 billion dollars of foreign indebtedness each year. This is big because the Russian GDP today is only one trillion dollars at the current dollars. So what does Russia do with the Kremlin? We have seen that Putin, to our great surprise, has sacked two of the big state enterprise managers since August, the, the Russian Railroads and the National Economic Bank, probably more 
the heads will fall. We didn't expect this to happen because Putin has been extremely loyal to his uh, top uh, lieutenants. He has cut heavily investment in Gazprom and Rosneft and other big uh, state enterprises. He still sticks to his friends. Arkady Rotenberg had ever more uh, big state, uh, state orders. But uh, we just saw Russia to a complete surprise on the 14th of March declaring we are withdrawing from, uh, from Syria on a, on a big scale. We should expect the unexpected. Okay, yeah. so Paul quickly, then Adrian, yeah. and then I'll give the Deputy Foreign Minister the last word. Well, I think the key message is, as Anders said, you expect the unexpected. But I'm afraid I'm very bleak at this point, and looking at the most <laughs> recent state, I was, lived in Russia for too long, more like Anders, <laughs> we, um, we came there at the same time in 1984. <laughs> um, at this point, the statements coming out of Russia, the comments and the glosses on the situation in the East and the Minsk agreements are very dark. We've had some coming from one of the think tanks which has been very much involved in, in policy in the East, which talks about the possibility that Russia may be required if Ukraine continues to be a hostile state on its border to change its policy and consider the disintegration of Ukraine. Now, these are statements by single think tanks, but they're, made, they're somewhat influential. And unfortunately, with our experience over the last um, eight years has been that some of the darkest things that come out of Moscow have turned out to be quite true. So it's less incentives at this point than trying to make it very clear to Russia the cost of further pressure and aggression in the East. It's very unfortunate to sound hawkish, but I think that's the only way. So I would say, uh, in, in summary, if Ukraine pursues a reform trajectory, if Ukraine uh, figures out uh, uh, steps within the Minsk process to meet as many of its criteria in return for solid uh, European and Western support for its uh, integrity and sovereignty and for the removal of all forces, it'll be on the right track. And the pressure will be on Russia, which has deep, long-lasting economic uh, uh, difficulties that Anders has alluded to. Uh, this year, the prognosis has been, what, one and a half to two and a half percent, but some people are saying that it could be as bad as four percent under certain conditions, which could be another eight or nine percent drop in, in, in living standards. If you looked at polling data in Russia at the end of the year, Mr. Putin's ratings were very high. But for the first time, Russians did not believe this was a short-term uh, downturn. Russians were in a very pessimistic mood. And I think we can play on these kinds of uh, sentiments. Thank you, Adrian. Sorry to cut you off. Please. We're out of time. Right. Um, I, I, but I'm going to give the Deputy Foreign Minister, again, as I said, the last word. Um, but I do think that Ukraine can also do more outside of Minsk to put pressure on Russia and, frankly, on the West, in as much as Ukraine can move aggressively on economic yeah. reform, on countering corruption, on really strengthening the Ukrainian state and showing those doubters that Ukraine and the Ukrainian government is capable of moving forward, I think that will put a lot of pressure on us in the West to support Ukraine more strongly vis-a-vis -vis Russia and the Minsk process. So, Mr. Deputy Minister, to you. Thank you. Don't you think that this is exactly the root of the problem? If Ukraine is successful, Ukraine is showing the signs of becoming the European nation with the rule of law and democracy and everything. That's exactly what Russia is trying to preclude. It's not about the uh, strategic importance of Black Sea and Crimea. It's not that important. You know, you understand it. We've seen it coming for years and years when we we're trying to get in NATO. We knew that we are frustrating them. We knew that someday it would come. We didn't want to be paranoid. It happened just the way it was predicted. 
what the only thing I'd like to add that we have to understand and realize that the long-term agreements are not working with Russia. The Budapest Memorandum is the best example of it. So what I would urge the countries who are helping us to, to consider what are the practical steps other than sanctions. Can, can it be peaceful or peacekeeping or peace-building mission be sent just to help us move to another stage, which will, be, which will be political resolution, the elections and everything? Because I agree with you, in half a year, if the sanctions stop, what we are doing next day. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, thank you, um, all of you, for taking the time early this morning. Um, I really want to give a, a real thanks to all of our panelists. Uh, first of all, the Deputy Foreign Minister for making himself available at a much later hour for him um, after, uh, I can only imagine, a very grueling set of meetings out in the East. Um, and again, thank you to our panelists for taking the time and the preparation to be here to share your insights. And I, I welcome uh, all of you joining me in a round of applause.